0: I'm the editor of Australian Foreign Affairs. It's great to have you here all tonight. um, And uh, I would like to just start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting, and pay my respect to the elders past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people. I'd also like to acknowledge some distinguished guests that we have here tonight. Lieutenant General Peter Lay, Rear Admiral Simon Cullen, Major General Fergus McLaughlin, and uh, Derek Brown, State Director of DFAT, and Andrew Fraser, uh, former Queensland Treasurer. Um, well, it's a real pleasure to be here in Brisbane to launch this issue. It's probably the right city to launch it, really. Um, an issue which, which looks at uh, Australia's relationship with the Pacific. The issue is titled, uh, Our Sphere of Influence, Rivalry in the Pacific. The issue looks at Australia's relations with the Pacific and its struggle, particularly recently, to retain influence and to continue to engage with its island neighbours. And there's been two main challenges in recent times, really, which I'm sure we'll hear a little bit about tonight, um, to to Australia's continued uh, engagement and policy in the Pacific and, and those have been... China and its its growing influence in the Pacific and also climate change and the threat that it's po- posing to our Pacific neighbours. Um, and the level of anxiety, particularly about Chinese influence um, in the Pacific, can be seen, I think, from Scott Morrison's step up, which is really his signature foreign policy um, and um, has involved an incredible and, and, and expensive... Um, foreign policy initiative, um, and it's really you know, quite a, a new phenomenon in Australia to see this level of engagement by the government in the Pacific, uh, and um, it's been welcomed in many ways, but there are also um, problems and challenges, and I think, again, we'll, we'll hear, hear a little bit about that tonight. Um, so, so, this issue looks at this phenomenon of, of how does Australia secure its interest in the, in the Pacific? And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that we have two of the, the lead writers um, in this issue here tonight. Uh, so I'll uh, briefly introduce them and talk about their issue and, and introduce the moderator, Caitlin Byrne, before I, before I hand over to Caitlin. So first, um, Hugh White, who is a professor of strategic studies. He's been an advisor to Bob Hawke. Uh, he was a um, principal author of the 2000 uh, Defence White Paper. His most recent book is How to Defend Australia, which has caused a lot of debate. It's sort of his own little new... Well, not little, big uh, white paper. Um, and uh, his his piece in this issue looks at why Australia has always had this determination to have a sphere of influence, an exclusive sphere of influence in the Pacific. And he looks at... Um, how the rise of China is is really uh, undermining that that goal of Australia, and he says that it's inevitable that Chinese influence will grow in this region, that it, its military reach will extend to the South Pacific, uh, and that is posing great challenges to Australia's defence, uh, and and ultimately will mean that Australia will have to abandon its sphere of influence, which would be quite a Radical idea, I think, for Australian uh, for Australia's defence outlook. Um, it's a f- it's a fascinating piece. Um, uh, alongside, um, uh, well, with Hugh tonight, we'll be hearing from uh, Sean Dorney, um, who I'm sure you you um, are familiar with and know his his face and his voice um, from his years as an ABC Pacific correspondent um, and his years in Papua New Guinea. I think he moved. From there, first in 1974, um, he spent decades covering Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, um, and uh, both helping Australia to understand that this region and and to engage with it. Um, and it's um, he also has a um, fantastic piece in this issue, looking at looking at Papua New Guinea, looking at some of the recent changes there, both in in terms of its culture and politics. Um, as well as its military, how Papua New Guinea is changing and how Australia's uh, relationship with it is changing. And it's really an impassioned call, I think, for Australia to re-engage with, um, with its its forgotten colony, as he calls it. Um, so uh, it's wonderful to have uh, Sean and Hugh here tonight and it's great to have uh, Caitlin Byrne, who will be our moderator. Um, Caitlin is the director of the Griffith Asia Institute Uh, She is an expert on public diplomacy um, and on soft power. Um, She's a former um, uh, um, uh, ex-DFAT. And um, Caitlin also is is an expert and a leading voice in Australia's uh, push to engage um, and improve its relations across the Asia-Pacific. So um, it's fantastic to have Caitlin moderating for us tonight. Um, I would just like to quickly thank the Griffith Asia Institute and Caitlin and all your team um, for organising and partnering on this event. Um, It is great to be here. And Caitlin, I'll hand over to you. Look forward to the discussion. Thanks.
1: Thank you.
2: (laughs) Thank you very much, Jonathan. Really fantastic to be able to partner with Australian Foreign Affairs again. The second time we've done that um, in the last two years, edition of the journal on our spheres of influence which you can buy on your way out so alongside Hugh's book I think so um, everyone's a winner tonight I suspect <laughs> let me begin also in the spirit of reconciliation and acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting tonight the Turrbal and the Yagara people I think it's really fitting that we always begin with that acknowledgement particularly when we're talking about Australia's engagement in the region and indeed the earliest links that this, this nation had forged really came from those Indigenous communities. And I'd also like to congratulate Jonathan on the addition, our sphere of influence. It's, not only is it timely just in the sense of our policy shifts over the last few months, but it's timely that we're talking about it this week We've seen Prime Minister Marape in the country, the first visit of a foreign leader to Australia since uh, the election of Scott Morrison. We've seen a number of visitors alongside, a number of announcements that have accompanied that visit this week. So the Pacific, Papua New Guinea both uh, loom large in our understanding of our place in the world and in our neighbourhood at the moment. I'd like also to congratulate the two authors I am absolutely chuffed to be sitting in between two great thinkers on Australian foreign and defence policy, our strategic outlook, so I'd like to thank them both. What is fascinating for me, reading the journal, is that your two papers really bookended the the discussion of the Pacific in this particular issue and I think there's a reason for that and I think that makes um, the prospect of our discussion all the more rich and I, I thank you for both being available. Now, I know we have many distinguished guests in the audience. The front row is looking particularly daunting, can I say. Um, You know, my background is very much in diplomacy and soft power, and I am passionate about the way that Australia views its strategic interests in the Asia-Pacific region. But many more of you are experts in the audience tonight, and I know that you'll have some questions of your own. So, what I thought we might do is have a discussion about the two issues, about some of the challenges and the opportunities that both our distinguished authors have identified, and then uh, hand over to you, so you've got plenty of time to start thinking now about your questions, and I think it's a rare opportunity to have two thinkers on the same stage with different perspectives uh, that we can really tease out some of the issues. So... Let me begin, Hugh, with you, if that's okay. Uh, Your your essay is framed in denial, and you're talking about defending Australia as China looks south. You begin your piece with a comment on the view that we hold of the nations to our near north and northeast, and you say that Australians have never really found these nations in our neighbourhood interesting, nor important, nor even profitable with a few exceptions, particularly around tourism, for example. You also mentioned we've been rather indifferent to them over time, to their dramatic landscapes, their rich and diverse cultures and their general welfare. And we've really only pursued very limited opportunities for trade. But you do note that these islands nonetheless hold strategic significance and have done so since the Europeans really arrived in Australia. So uh, I wonder if you can start going back in history a little bit uh, where you start your piece and just explain that for us a little more. Well,
3: very happy to do that and a great pleasure to be here, Caitlin. Can I say particularly a great pleasure to appear with Sean. uh, Sean is uh, one of those people who taught me as he's taught so many others, including including he's taught Australia, uh, modern Australia, post-colonial Australia. About PNG in the Pacific, I first met Sean when I was very young and green journalist, trying to work out what the hell was going on in PNG, and he was extraordinarily generous in helping me. And he's, I've followed his guidance on these issues uh, f- very much ever since. So the, the reason I started my essay with that bit of history, with that broad observation, is that it seems, at least, and remember, I'm coming from a sort of defence and strategic policy perspective, but it seems to me, it's always been my experience working in government. And my observation of history that whilst there's been different factors, there has been some trade and economic opportunities, plantations and so on, a bit of mining, the, the missionary enterprises of the 19th century and so on. But the thing that really drove Australia's initial recognition that it lived, that it wasn't just an island isolated from the rest of the cosmos, but was an island amongst islands and that we were surrounded by islands across our north and that drew our predecessors' attention to those islands was the fear that they would become bases for attacks on Australia, a very primal strategic idea. And one of the things that strikes me when you look at the way in which that first generation of Australian strategic thinkers, and these are primarily people in the 1860s and 1870s, at the time when they started to worry that the Pax Britannica wouldn't last forever, that they drew very much on, because they were almost all British, they drew very much on their British experience. And Britain had always been obsessed by the idea that the, that a major power occupying the the uh, ports on the other side of the English Channel would be able to attack Britain and uh, across the the English Channel, and it was a kind of a no-brainer for for people who came from that very strong strategic culture and might say very successful strategic culture. Um, you know, kept most of the invasions at bay since 1066. Um, that that. And, and you could see, they, they said they this explicitly, that the, the islands of the southwest Pacific were to Australia what the low countries were to Britain. And therefore, pre- preventing any major power, uh, intruding into those, became an absolute priority. And so you can see right from the middle of the 19th century, in fact, the first thing Australians started doing when they started thinking about Australia's security from an Australian perspective, rather than simply as one of the many things that the Royal Navy was looking after under Pax Britannica, was to think this thought and it, re- and it drove them to start thinking about the different approaches that London might take and that, and that we might take. And it's tr- it seems to me that more or less ever since, when you look at the, the peaks and troughs of Australia's interest in, the, in its island neighbours, the peaks always coincide with a sense of strategic anxiety. Um, and it's not to say it completely disappears when that lapses, but, it, but it, it's been the big driver of Australia's strategic engagement. And I've been very struck by how this latest wave, the, the build-up in anxiety, which began actually, I think, maybe five years ago, when people started thinking about the growth, particularly of Chinese aid in the South Pacific, but reached a new pinnacle in the last couple of years and uh, particularly, I think, with the story about the Vanuatu, the naval base in Vanuatu, which I mentioned in the essay. Um, it, it looked to me like saying, here we go again. Here we go again. Um, as, the, it, as, as soon as we start thinking that somebody else is going to take an interest in it, we start taking an interest in it. Now, the in-denial yeah. phrase, as you mentioned, which I can't claim credit for, that's our very uh, witty and perceptive editor at work, um, but, it, but it, it's actually got a nice... Punning element to it because it's in denial. In the sense that our objective is to deny our immediate neighbourhood to potentially hostile powers, and that that particular formulation um, is something which you'll see in successive Australian white papers. Something was kind enough to mention the one that I had a big hand in writing, the 2000 defence white paper, has has that phrase almost precisely as a statement of Australia's one of Australia's core strategic interests. So that we're in denial; we're trying to deny access to the south pacific to china but we're also in denial because we're kidding ourselves if we think that the way in which we've done that in the past trying to keep the germans out trying to keep the french out trying to keep the japanese out that didn't work so well trying to keep the libyans out yes serious <laughs> libya was trying to keep the russians out but all the, all the approaches we took to trying to do that are not going to work this time around because the country we're trying to keep out is different china is different
2: so I also got another element from that in denial. And I thought, and Jonathan, you know, it made me think so well done on your editing as well, um, because we hear the, the language of anxiety, yes. of vulnerability, yes. which sort of suggests to me, at least, that we're highly attuned to what's happening in the environment as well. And I wondered if there was an element that we're also, you know, is there an element of denial about what the future might bring? Oh, um...
3: Yes, there certainly is. Um, uh, don't get me started on this. Um, but w- w- one of the most interesting and important things about what's happened in Australia, or at least in the way Australia thinks about its place in the world, over the last, I'm going to say, 10 years, has been how resolutely we've been in denial about how different China is. Uh, how China's rise doesn't just constitute another day in the office in the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Department of Defense. Because China is a qualitatively different kind of country from anywhere we've encountered before, and the core reason for that is simply that it's bigger and richer. For the first time since European settlement, there is an Asian country with an economy bigger than that than that of our great and powerful friends, and it's going to keep getting bigger still. Now, have a big debate about the trajectory of China's economy, but I think we're in denial about the fact that what really matters is not what might happen in the future, but what's already happened now, and so. Uh, the, the sudden shock when people woke up to the fact that China might actually be challenging our position as the primary power in the Southwest Pacific was, if you like, a subset of the shock that we're experiencing when we realise that actually China is not just dominating, uh, challenging our position as the primary power in the Southwest Pacific, it's challenging America's position as the primary power in Asia. And America's position as the primary power in Asia is the foundation of Australia's foreign policy and strategic policy. And so um, part of what we're seeing happening as the government steps up in the Pacific, if that's what it's doing, we might come back to that, is, uh, is coming to terms with this much bigger trend of which this is a component, albeit a very important component part.
2: So I will come back, we will come back to some of that, the, in particular looking at China's role and the Pacific step up. But Sean, now I'd like to come to you. And you're going to notice we'll do this interplay between the the wider strategic view and what's happening in Papua New Guinea, and it's a, a nice contrast, I think, for the discussion. Your paper is titled The PNG Awakening Inside the Forgotten Colony, and you begin from a very different place, not so much from outside, as Hugh does, with a strategic gaze looking across, but rather from within, as a member of the family. You arrived in PNG, I think, as Jonathan mentioned, in the early 1970s and have spent some 20 years in the country as a journalist, but obviously have a deep connection going back and forth over quite a bit of time. So I wonder if you can tell us, and it's a much more personal story, but a little bit more about how you came to the country and how it came to adopt you as one of its own.
3: (laughs) As it did.
4: <laughs> All good stories start with something in, like that, don't Who said you feel further fields greener? do nothing to stand in your way. Um, and then I was offered a chance to go up to Papua New Guinea to work for what had just been created by the ABC and the Australian government's um, radio service. Uh, the AB, the uh, Australian government had a provincial radio service that was combined. With what had been the ABC to create the National Broadcasting Commission of PG. And so I went up there and it was a just, a, you know, absolutely fortuitous for me that I was there for three years, about 18 months prior to independence, and then 18 months after independence. And it was basically a huge, great eye-opener for me. I as a boy. Born and brought up in Townsville and did a bit of schooling in Brisbane, I actually found Papua New Guinea to be an exceptionally exciting and interesting place. You know, things happen there that you just shake your head and go, oh, my goodness. I mean, just recently... (laughs) I'll give you a story that involves Pauline. (laughs) Pauline? Pauline is from Manus Island in PNG, and just recently on a social network uh, thing on Facebook, there were, there were Manus Islanders complaining about Highlanders taking over the Loringau market and having too much influence on the business activities in, in Manus and Pauline went on and said, "Look, these people are prepared to work. The problem with us Manus people is we just talk, 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 and we don 't really work pauline finished this flourish and within days um, there was a massacre in the highlands of women and children and pregnant women in the Prime Minister's electorate and Pauline got accosted by these Manus Islanders, what do you think of Highlanders now? So I mean Papua New Guinea is endlessly surprising and it keeps taking you by surprise the entire time I I just found it the most absolutely fascinating place. And and one of the things that I talk about in the chapter is that when I first arrived there in '74, there were six Australian journalists covering Papua New Guinea. There were two at the ABC. um, This doesn't include me because I was at the NBC, but there were two at the ABC, one with Fairfax, uh, one with AAP, another with the Herald and Weekly Times, and then there was a freelance journalist who was... Or earning a decent income, sending stories off to all sorts of other Australian news outlets. But because Papua New Guinea didn't collapse and you know, end up as a complete basket case, um, the Australian media rapidly lost interest. It is quite expensive to have a correspondent in Port Moresby and all those organisations gradually pulled out. By the early 80s, there were only two left. That was AAP and the ABC. And then a few years ago, AAP decided to close its bureau. So Natalie Whiting, who's the ABC correspondent now, is basically battling on alone Mm. in PNG. And and I do think that the Australian media has really dropped the ball a bit. And one of the reasons I have um, titled one of the sections of my paper, Thank God for China, is that now, because of the Chinese influence and the Chinese interest, all of a sudden there's been this resurrection of interest in Canberra and even, thank God, some resurrection of interest in the media. Mm. And so we're seeing a few more stories now um, covering what's going on in Papua New Guinea.
2: And it's interesting you raise that and the issue of media coverage. I know we've got other journalists in the audience tonight as well. Um, And this has been a really vexed issue for Australian public diplomacy and the funding of broadcasting right across the Pacific, which we have seen diminish you know, um, incredibly over the last decade. It's always been under pressure, but it really has diminished. I wonder if you could comment on what you see as the role of broadcasting of Australian broadcasters based in the Pacific, not just for our understanding and for our awareness of what's going on, but also internally for an understanding of Australia.
4: Well, there were two um, things that led to the current situation. One was that the Australian government decided not to fund Australia Network Mm. anymore, which was the ABC's international television service. And and as a result of that decision in 2014, I was made redundant. Close to home. Second to that is that the ABC had combined Australia Network and Radio Australia, their newsrooms. So when the funding cutbacks came, it didn't just affect Australia Network, it really affected Radio Australia. And then the ABC decided to pull out of shortwave broadcasting. There's a a group of us at the moment who are agitating for a resurrection of Australia's broadcasting into the region into the Pacific, but also into Asia. Mm. Um, I think it's a tragedy mm. that we have sort of withdrawn from what used to be, you know, an exceptionally useful service. And and as you say, this wasn't just a service to Australia. This was, you know, people in the Pacific really relied mm. on that service. And And, you know, one of the reasons I've, you know, was able to operate so successfully in the pacific is that people knew me.
2: Yeah.
4: You know, throughout the pacific, people knew my voice and so it was it opened doors and let me sort of have this sort of connection with, with politicians and other people that just would not have been possible. So there's a otherwise.
2: relational dimension that comes There's from an enormous being relational dimension. Mm. We, we tell stories in other ways and you might remember Uh, A couple of years ago, I think 2017, we had the exhibition of Number One Neighbour uh, at the Queensland Gallery of Modern Art and I am going to give a shout out to Ruth McDougall who's in the audience and was the curator on that exhibition. It was landmark uh, in that it was the first exhibition to explore contemporary Papua New Guinean art I think it demonstrated, you know, it used bold colours and I uh, was reading some of the the blurb around Number One Neighbour the other day, bold colours, sculptured forms incorporating humour and hauntingly beautiful sounds from communities across Papua New Guinea. And one critic suggested that it reflected a sense of optimism and energy that accompanied Papua New Guinea independence in 1975, a a time that... (laughs) brought new narratives, new identities and dialogues. It also revealed a very complex relationship between Papua New Guinea and its colonial master. Something you've tackled in your Lowy essay on the Embarrassed Colonialist. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit perhaps about the transition to independence. You you would have seen some of that while you were there. And then what did that mean for this bilateral relationship? (laughs)
4: How long do we have? Well, yes. Um, Look, back in 74, there seemed to be a huge sort of level engagement across all sorts of different um, aspects of the relationship between Papua New Guinea and Australia. And... It didn't take all that long for that to start to fray and for the interest to, to sort of dissipate. Um, cost is one of the reasons, certainly from the media's point of view, that was one of the reasons. The, the cost of maintaining correspondence in Port Moresby is not cheap and prices rose very rapidly in p g especially for expatriates, you know, right. and, and the security issues and other things. So it became more and more difficult for o- news organisations, mm-hmm. Australian news organisations, to maintain bureaus in, in P&G. And I think that that's sort of led to this diminution, you know, th- this dilution of interest mm. um, in Papua New Guinea. of government side mm-hmm.
3: an anecdote about that. Um, th- there used to be, maybe still is for all I know, an annual meeting of Australian and PNG ministers called the Australia Papua New Guinea Ministerial Forum. And the first one of those I attended when I was working for Kim Beasley as Defence Minister would have been in about 1985, so a decade after independence. And I was very struck by the fact that as the ministerial delegations came together, every, one of th- every single one of those ministers from the Australian side knew at least one of his PNG counterparts from before they were in politics. They were yeah. mates of some sort. Now, you know, they, they didn't all know all the others, but at least all of them had at least one person across the table they could relate to absolutely as people. Now, the last one I went to was in my last year of working in government, which was in 2000, and not a single one of the Australian ministers had ever met their Papua New Guinea counterpart before. That was partly just because of, you know, the way ministerial shuffles had gone, but it was a, it w- you, we'd gone from a, a genuine level of intimacy and friendship and familiarity most cases in that case going back to before 1975 to two countries that you know we could have been you know Lithuania Australia and Lithuania you know who, who are these people we've never met them before and, and actually
2: it, Hugh you do talk to these, these decades of strategic oh yes. drift really in the relationship which has done us a disservice in well, some ways. It, well
3: and there's a, there's a reason for it which is um, a, a different kind of re- reason uh, for it than the ones that, that Sean's been adducing and that is that we've been through some very good decades from a strategic point of view. Right. There hasn't been any major power contesting America's position in Asia. There hasn't been any major power contesting Australia's position as the primary power in the South Pacific. Yeah. The biggest worry we've had were the Libyans, for God's sake. Right. I mean, not doing anything against the Libyans, but, but there was, actually, seriously, in the late 80s, there was a sudden upswell of concern when Libya started training the... Um, Vanuatu police force yeah. or something like that it was but actually it was for, for a few weeks there it was the biggest issue that we were <laughs> dealing with in canberra yes. now now the, the, the fact is that you know we've, we've, we've had it lucky and so it's been possible for us to be to pay relatively little attention mm. and we've had some moments of anxiety and attention when we 've seen in, internal um, uh, Security concerns, of which, you know, obviously uh, the drama and tragedy of Bougainville in the late 80s and into the 90s, and then the dramas in the Solomons, which led to Ramsey in the early 2000s. But it's worth bearing in mind that in both cases, my observation of what drove Australian political leaders to make commitments to Australia's engagement in both of those was a basic understanding that in the long term, Australia wanted to preserve stability in those countries, internal stability in those countries, because that was important to preserving external denial. And uh, I mean, I can be quite specific about that. When ministers asked themselves, as they did, why should we get involved in this? That was the answer, because in the long run, we really need to keep these islands under our sphere of influence, and we we can't do that if they're too internally unstable. Other countries will get in and interfere.
2: And so now we've seen a shift from that period of complacency to one where there is a heightened sense of concern and anxiety. Uh, Last year, when he was talking to the... and launching the Pacific Step-Up Strategy in Townsville, Prime Minister Morrison talked about the Pacific, and I'd be very interested in your respective responses to this, when he said, this is our patch, this is our part of the world... This is where we have special responsibilities, where we always have, we always will. We have their back and they have ours. We are more than partners by choice. We are connected as members of a Pacific family. What, what were your thoughts when you heard that? I'll begin with you. Uh,
3: yeah. Well, um, a couple of things to be said. The, fir- the first is uh, no, we haven't always done that. Um, it's, we have ever since independence in Papua New Guinea's case and elsewhere in the Pacific. We have put a lot of aid there, but, and that counts for something. Uh, but I think it's been very easy for Australian governments to use aid as a substitute for genuine engagement, um, uh, or at least for deeper engagement. It's become the kind of... Um, you know, it, 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 it's taken the place of the bigger and broader and fuller relationship we have, we, we, we've had. We, we haven't had... We, we've allowed that that intimacy and real engagement and familiarity to drop away for all the reasons that Sean's, that, that Sean's mentioned. Um, and so I think it is just fanciful to say we've always done this. No, we haven't. Yeah. That's why the step-up's required. Yeah. But the other thing is I'm, I'm very s- suspicious of this language of family. It's not that there isn't something in it, I- including, I think, I mean, I've I've detected over the years that one of the factors at work in our... Approach to the Southwest Pacific, and although we do have, we are absolute masters at, at um, benign, or not always such, not, not not always benign neglect. There, there is a sense in which, when something does go wrong, when there's a major national catastrophe, for example, a major natural disaster, it it, it is very spontaneous for Australian political leaders. Echoing, I'm I'm sure, the the views of or their views are the views of the public. To think, no, this this is our backyard. These are our neighbours. We should do something for them. It's not. It's not like a famine in Africa. You know, people really do feel that commitment. So it's not that there's nothing in that, but I do think language like family has got very difficult, complex connotations. I think there are probably some good connotations, but I think there are also some negative connotations. And one of the things that I that my sort of antenna immediately went up when he used that word family is. That sounds like asserting our position as the head of that family. And that's something we've got to be extremely careful about doing. Leadership is, in any culture, but I think particularly in Melanesian culture, is not something you inherit, it's something you earn and, and you build. And you've got you to make it so. And so I think, I think there was a bit of presumption about that. Yeah. And the last point, of course, is... I, we might come into this a bit more later. Is uh, you know what, So okay, that's good. Now, what's actually going to happen? Let's see the action. And um, so I did think I'll yes. wait and see, and, I, not, and I'm not impressed so far.
2: How will this family relationship unfold, and for sure? Uh, for you, Sean, you well, do my, have family ties. Yes. But how yeah. does this sit, yes. sit? Well,
4: I had a ver- very similar reaction um, in that I thought using the word family. Uh, indicated that there were some parents around.
3: (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I'm reassured to hear that you responded the same. (laughs) Um,
4: Look, I don't... You know, I'm really delighted Mm. to have heard what Morrison is saying. Mm. And Morrison himself does have some Pacific connections. I mean, he does have religious sort of connections into, you know, Mm. the Pacific, which is a positive, you know, I think a, a good thing. So I've been sort of really pleased. This term, our patch, I don't like too much. It sort of, you know, it does indicate that that we're going to deny it to anyone else. Um, But all I might say is that I have really, really been pleased that all of a sudden there's this refocusing going on and there is now some thought being put into how do we follow through this step up? How do we actually make it work? Um, Like this infrastructure facility that that is going to help build uh, three billion dollars, I think it is. Um, My concern with that is that we're so worried about China building up debt in the Pacific. Are we just creating another level of debt for all these Pacific Island countries? But definitely the infrastructure is needed. Yeah.
2: And actually, you bring us to, you know, the, in some ways, the issue at the core of, of all of this, which is China's uh, rising influence in the region and a gaze towards the Pacific. Um, for both of you, China looms large in your essays. And I, I'm interested, Hugh, if you can talk us through a little bit more of the significance of that southward gaze. You also talk about China next door. Um, and you ask these questions, you pose these questions yourself through the paper. Why would China want a military base in the Pacific? And how hard, even if it wants to establish a military base, would it be to establish that presence?
3: Yeah, no, it's a, well, it's a really fascinating question. And, of course, it goes to, it's, a, it's embedded within a broader question of what the, what the hell is China after? What does China want? And uh, that's a very big and complex and contestable topic. Uh, in itself. Uh, cle- clearly one of the things China's doing is it's just out there trying to find markets and, and resources and so on, what any growing economy would do. And, and I don't think we, need to, we should underestimate uh, the, 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 the significance of that set of motives, which even if we would, wouldn't regard them as entirely pure, or at least clearly understandable, you know, money is the purest of all motives and so on. But I do think um, it's prudent for us to judge that China also has a strategic agenda. And the strategic agenda, as I interpret it, and this is pretty crude, but I think it's not inaccurate, is that China aims to replace the United States as a primary power, at least in East Asia and the Western Pacific. And, uh, and, uh, as pa- and the Southwest Pacific is part of that. And as part of that, it's very natural for China to seek to establish uh, its, uh, a, a, st- a strategic position in the Southwest Pacific. Now, one of the reasons it wants to do that is to precisely to show that it can. Leadership of the kind I'm talking about, strategic leadership in a region, is a rather subtle and complex thing. And one of the ways in which you establish it is by showing that you can do things that other people don't want you to do. And so, for example, in the South China Sea, China has has asserted its leadership in that part of the world by building military facilities on rocks and reefs which America said it didn't want it to do and the fact that it has done it when America didn't want it to is itself a demonstration of China's growing strength and so what uh, I think at least one of the things that China is seeking to do as it builds a strategic presence in the southwest Pacific whether or not that actually involves a base I'll come back to that in a minute um, is to say to America and also to say to Australia you don't own this patch you can't keep us out We are the leading power in this part of the world, and we will do what we want to do. Um, And to that extent, it's worth bearing in mind that, in a sense, the harder we push back, the more we make a big thing of saying to the Chinese, you mustn't operate in this part of the world, the more benefit China gains when they do. The harder we want to say no, the weaker we look when they do it anyway. Now, on the point of military bases, this is a pretty, this is a pretty rather perplexing thing. Uh, it, it does seem to me that in, in what you might call purely operational terms, a military base in the Southwest Pacific doesn't do much for China. Um, there are two ways of thinking about this as part of China's broader strategy. One is that the Chinese actually act have not actually hitherto been very strong on overseas bases at all. Um, there is an argument that it's starting to seek bases, for example, in the Indian Ocean and Africa, and there might be an emerging strategy there. But if if China's doing that, it isn't, or at least it isn't if they're smart, and I think they mostly are, that they think these really constitute serious military assets for major conflict. Bases like that, uh, based so far from China, for that matter so close to Australia, is going to be very vulnerable uh, to interdiction of its supply routes, uh, if we have the right armed forces, and very vulnerable to destruction. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they're serious military assets any more than the island bases in the South China Sea are. I think they are, in other words, primarily diplomatic signals, but diplomatic signals matter. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I f- for that reason, I think, uh, I, although I think the story about the Vanuatu base probably was, as both the Chinese and the Vanuatu have said, a bit of a furphy, I think we should not be surprised if China does seek uh, military presence, um, and and I I personally think it's going to be very hard for us to stop that, and we have to think very carefully about how we should respond to it.
2: And are we presuming that the Pacific Island nations would take the side of Australia in that discussion? Well, it
3: it goes back to this point about about language and and family. It's very easy for us to say, from canberra or even from brisbane that you know we share values with these countries and therefore they'll do what we want and i think that is a very big mistake they have their own motives and their own act- objectives and one of the th- of course they have lots of reasons to be anxious about china's growing influence just as we do but they have lots of reason to want to get along with china because china is the biggest source for them of future economic opportunities as it is for us and so we can't say to them well we're walking this very tight line between trying to maximise our benefits from China and minimise our things. We we can't say to them, you can't walk that same line.
4: I was very interested in something that Dan McGarry, who's a journalist in Vanuatu, wrote recently. It was um, in response to all that talk about the possibility of a naval base and everything. He actually, in this piece, he said, the main difference between Beijing and Canberra is that Beijing listens. For better or worse, Chinese diplomats listen to what Pacific leaders want and often enough give it to them. Yes, yes. The other point that he, he um, uh, made is that he said, make no mistake, when the Pacific is in need, Australia helps. It helps more than any other nation. But the overwhelming majority of Australians don't seem to know or care that it does. If they knew, they'd probably care, but they don't so they don't have a reason to care. On the naval base in Manus, I was very interested with Powers Parkop, who's the governor of Moresby, but is a Manus Islander. When he, um, when all that stuff about the naval base and Australia and and New Zealand and the US and whatever, he said that he actually raised the idea of redeveloping the base with Australia in 2014 but it failed to attract any interest. Yes. So why now? Yes. The only yes. reason, he said, is China. Yes. Mm. Yes.
2: Yeah. Which brings us back to your point about thank goodness for China, and you do talk about that as a catalyst. That was in cheek. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's a, there is another issue that seems to be a gap in the discussion. We're talking about billions of dollars in foreign aid, we're talking about military bases, about electrification projects, about undersea cables, and yet climate change remains one of those thorny issues that is under, unaddressed, uh, particularly on the Australian side. Jenny Haywood, in her piece, talks about this when she says, we, we tend to assume that our foreign policy interests are, are fairly much shared when we're talking with the Pacific, and yet it seems as we get fur- go further and further down this track that we are actually missing... Um, in action when it comes to climate change. So, uh, uh, Katerina Tewa also makes the point and she talks about Australian flippancy, the flippancy of our politicians. And we all can remember uh, the comment that Peter Dutton made about, you know, seas lapping at, at your door. How important is this issue going to be for Australia's influence? How, how important is it that the step-up actually in step with climate change
4: look I might be wrong but in relation to this I think Papua New Guinea is not leading in any way this is an issue of real you know importance to Tuvalu and Kiribati and and Nauru and and the the, the atoll nations are really petrified about what's what's coming Um, And that's why, you know, at the the recent, at the last Pacific Island leaders' meeting, there actually was, you know, a declaration that this was the biggest issue and and Australia couldn't prevent that being brought up as the major issue that's facing the Pacific Islands. So it is, it's a a difficult one. It's a really difficult one for Australia, I think.
3: Yeah, look, I think, I mean, first of all, I think, Sean's absolutely right, this is a different kind of issue for the atollic States than for the the hilly ones. Um, But I do think it's a very important issue, uh, nonetheless, because it becomes a focal point for the the South Pacific countries' um, perception that their strategic agenda is not the same as ours. And, you know, the whole drift of of the debate at the forum was, from Australia's point of view, that, you know, the, the only story in town that really matters is the China story and from their point of view it was no actually we've got, we've got a whole lot of other issues and and I think climate change become a I mean, very important issue in itself but it also became the focus for that point of differentiation and so uh, and the other point about climate change of course is that to the extent that it is a genuine you know as Sean said really visceral issue um, uh, the Australia's approach to has got nothing to do with foreign policy it's got everything to do with what we do here um, and where we export our coal and all yeah, that sort yeah. of thing, and so you know, this is this is this is not problem belong Department of Foreign Affairs. This is a really deep national yeah. politics, and uh, I, and I think if I can put it that way, that's a, that's a part of um, Australian politics uh, that this issue cannot touch, and so I think this is this is going to continue to be a stumbling block. The
4: other we've, point I we've just we've got a treasurer here in Queensland who has a problem.
3: Yeah, no, so, that's right yeah. <laughs> yes, I do hear tell, but but there's also just another point worth making, and that is, um, you know, it's uh, like Sean. I think it's great that the government is focusing on more investment in infrastructure, but uh, we do have to remember that the uh, one of the key lessons we've learned through decades now of experience in in supporting or attempting to support development in the Southwest Pacific, including in PNG, is that infrastructure by itself doesn't work mm. and, uh, and that investment in infrastructure which doesn't um, uh, also provide the social and institutional and governmental settings in which, the inst- in which that infrastructure can make a difference. And, I mean, you know, the Highlands Highway is like yeah. an absolutely copybook example here. It uh, doesn't achieve very much. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, exactly as Sean says, if all, if all we do is, is try and outbid China in an infrastructure bidding war, mm-hmm. uh, then we're not going to do very much for the Southwest Pacific and we're not going to do much for ourselves. Mm.
2: And it's interesting. We have seen sport on the agenda. You yes. had a fabulous story, Sean, in the beginning of your piece. When well, you he's, a, he's, a, he's a sportsman. a rugby <laughs> hero um, no. of the criminals team, no. I understand yeah. your... your um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, for those, voice activated. for
4: those who haven't uh, read the chapter uh, I begin the chapter by saying that um, I've been diagnosed with motor neurone disease which explains the wheel, the wheelie walker I'm on, but uh, my daughter and son and my wife recently bought me some Dragon voice recognition software because it's more and more difficult to type and I've been uh, reading into the Dragon software and it types have it up on the screen um, notes that my mother has made, rather extensive notes of our family history and she talks about how in 1975 she and my father came up to Port Moresby to watch me play as halfback for the Papua New Guinea National Rugby League team. Now the National Rugby League team is called the Kummels, which is, is pigeon for birds of paradise. Unfortunately Dragon didn't understand <laughs> and uh, decided that the name of the Papua New Guinea National Rugby League team was not the kumals, but the criminals. (laughs) (laughs) Which I say in the piece was amused me but annoyed me because there are lots of people in Australia who probably think the criminals would be (laughs) a reasonable name for any team in Papua New Guinea. But the reality is that I think it's very unfair Mm -hmm. and that, Mm, um, you know, but that's that's where that that came from.
2: And, And it is interesting, I was in... Uh, Port Moresby a couple of weeks ago and was at a very serious event. I did manage to uh, make mention of Go Maroons and immediately had everyone. Everyone was on my side except for those that were going for the blues. There weren't many,
4: can I say. Pauline (laughs) is a blues supporter, which means means State of Origin Night, the two TVs in our house are watched by different people.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it has come time for us to hand over to you and I know there will be many uh, questions from the audience. We have a couple of roving mics. Please put up your hand and just let us know your name, where you're from and um, if you can keep your question short and punchy, that would be fantastic. Stefan.
1: Hi, um, Stefan Armbruster. I'm, I'm a, one of those journalists. I work for SBS. Um, Interesting what you're saying about the, uh, the Vanuatu base's story. The journalist who wrote that piece yeah. is now a media advisor for our foreign minister, yeah. Maurice Payne, ah. of late. Ah. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Um, it was great to see the, the range of topics you talked about in terms of Australia relations with the Pacific, including climate change. I was waiting for that. Um, one that didn't get raised was culture. culture uh, the Australia's understanding of Pacific culture. And um, I was wondering if you could talk to um, Australia seems to have a, a lot of difficulty, unlike New Zealand, uh, with its own indigenous people, its Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and we've got the current debate about um, the um, about the, the treaty and the voice, parliament, the vo- the, uh, voice in parliament. Um, how important is it for Australia to deal with its domestic problem to be able to deal effectively <coughs> and credibly with its Pacific neighbours? Well, I was
3: going to defer. I'll come in later. I've got something to say, but I wasn't. Oh, have you? Maybe. Yeah. Well, I have
4: <laughs> nothing to say. Um, uh, Stefan, you know, culture is so so important in the in the Pacific. I mean, that that exhibition that that they had here at Goma a few years ago just you know, shows you how important to almost everyday life culture is in in. PNG and the Pacific. So, I mean, how do we adapt to that? How do we understand it? Very, very difficult sort of question. But things like what GOMA did is is sort of helps from this end on the Australian side to educate people that, you know, there there isn't, um, that that there's a lot that's going on in the region. And, and, I mean, There is contemporary culture as well as traditional culture and contemporary culture is doing pretty well in quite a number of Pacific Island countries at the moment. Um, I would love to see a bit more cross-connection between Australia and the Pacific in terms of cultural issues. I think there's huge scope there for there to be greater interaction between Australia and the Pacific? Yeah, look,
3: I, I, I'd, um, I'd make two sets of points. Uh, the first is that at the introduction, the first couple of sentences of my essay, which Caitlin uh, mentioned, I do make this slightly harsh judgment that Australians have never actually been very interested in the Southwest Pacific, except when people start to challenge our position mm-hmm. there. And uh, that is, I think, basically true, and an important sort of fact, but it's also—it hasn't been universally true, and there have been times, and I think particularly towards the end of the colonial era, when there were quite large numbers of Australians with a lot of experience in PNG who really did start, to, you know, and some of the old Kiaps, for example, you know, they'd spent their lifetime out in the bush, and they, you know, they really, wouldn't say they got it, but they had—they really developed a passionate interest in it, and you can still see some traces of that at times, but um, but overwhelmingly. Since independence, and goes back to the points that Sean was talking about, that's just washed away. The other point I'd make is that my own experience of this—I uh, was very, very struck, as anyone who has a similar experience must be—that when you start working in the South Pacific with New Zealanders, you, it, including Fakires you immediately see that they've just got something that we don't have. And not just in Polynesia where they've got all this sort of Maori thing happening, but in Melanesia as well. You just think, what have, what, what have they got that we haven't? Well, we know exactly, well, or more broadly, they have an established, I mean, not problem-free, but an established, respectful, generous relationship with their own Indigenous people. And so I do, I do think that in the long run is not... This is not going to help in the next five-year plan, but in the long run, if Australia is going to develop the kind of position and relationships that we should aim to develop in the Southwest Pacific, then a bit like climate change, it's back home.
4: And could I just say that uh, my criticism to the Australian media does not extend to Stefan. <laughs> 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 who, who does an exceptional job yeah. covering yeah. all sorts of issues yeah. in the Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah.
4: For um, SBS. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And we actually have a question down the front first and then we'll come to James in the middle. So just down the front, Peter Leigh.
5: Hugh, you might be relieved it's not for you. Oh, that's too relief. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sean, <laughs> you made a terrific point that the majority of Australians don't know about the Pacific and therefore don't care. Um, This is a major change in policy for the Australian Government. It's going to change our priorities and it's going to change where we spend the money because we know at the moment that for both DFAT and Defence these are unfunded tasks. Mm -hmm. So therefore it's going to be really difficult. I think one of the problems of Australians is we don't know much about our region and and I'd instance Indonesia in particular and i put Indonesia in the sphere. The ignorance about Indonesia is frankly is embarrassing. So, how do we get Australians to know and therefore care about the Pacific?
4: It helps to have a Prime Minister who's interested. Yes. Um, and I hope that drives a lot more interest. I mean, I've certainly noticed that, you know going back to the media, that there's now an increasing sort of attention being paid by different parts of of the media. Back when I was writing that article, or or may have been 8, 12 months ago, I did a bit of a survey of what was in the international pages of The Australian over a couple of weeks. And the, the... I can't remember the exact percentages now, but about 35% of the stories were, were America. Um, quite a number of the stories were, were uh, Europe. Um, Asia was only about 14%, mm. and I think the Pacific was about 3%. Yeah. But if you took Manus and Asylum Seekers out of that, yeah. it was less than 1%. Yeah. Yeah. So, hopefully, the increased interest in Canberra in what's going on in the Pacific will convince those bureaus in Canberra of the media organisations that they should be taking a greater interest. And I think we are starting to see
2: mm.
4: a little bit of that. Mm.
2: Did you want to add anything?
3: Maggie? Look, I, I just make this point that in, in the end, what will drive Australian interest in engagement is an understanding of its importance. And there's a, then there's a kind of a once people understand it's important, they make the effort to, to, to learn about it, they then understand how interesting it is. And that then starts to become self-generating. And, you know, for, for a generation of Australians uh, that, that experienced the Pacific War, for example, then it, it was very easy to persuade them of the importance of what that generation called the islands. And that drove the extraordinary commitment that Australia made. I'm not saying it was a benevolent, but the... Ex- commitment that we made as a colonial power uh, to, uh, to keep, con- you know, the huge diplomatic cost and so on to keep control of that part of the world, um, at least with PNG, and to encourage the British to stay engaged elsewhere. Um, and so I, d- I do think it's, it, 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 as Australians start to understand how Asia is changing, understand how much more demanding our strategic environment is going to be. They'll understand how we're going to have to need to work much more intelligently, both in our immediate neighbourhood and more broadly. They'll realise it's more important. They'll start paying more attention. They'll then start thinking, God, these places are really interesting. They'll, you know, go through an abbreviated version of Sean's experience. Wow, this place is phenomenal. And then hopefully it picks up. Otherwise, we're going to kind of drift away. And, you know, there is a... It's been extraordinarily easy for Australia to exist in a bit of a bubble, isolate it from its own region, except via the trade flows, because we've had an Asia which has been made safe for us by the United States. And that's not going to be the Asia we live in in decades to come, so we're going to have to work much harder ourselves to make it safe for us. And I like to think, my optimistic moments, that, that that will generate more engagement, and the engagement then generates more interest. And it's hopefully becomes a kind of a sweet circle. than And
4: I think it's interesting that up until after the Second World War, well, before the Second World War, Papua and New Guinea were yes. two entirely yes. different yes. administrations, yes. Yes. It, and it was a product of, I think, the Japanese <laughs> interest. But yes. after the Second World War, yes. Australia decided to put the two together and yes. and try and sort of di- drive development mm. there. And mm. and but mm. up until then, you know, one half had been run by the military and or yes. had a military administrator. Yes and the other half was Papua, which had been sort of run virtually the same since we took it from the Brits in um, 1906 or something. Mm.
2: There was a question right in the middle, James O'Neill.
6: Thank thank you, James O'Neill. I'm a barrister uh, working primarily in Asia. At the uh, very recent G20 meeting, the President of China declined to speak to the Australian Prime Minister. And that was the second year in a row that such a snub had occurred, albeit the Australian Prime Minister had changed. Mm. Given that China is Australia's latest largest trading partner, nearly three times the size of the next largest, which is Japan, the failure to report the snub by the Chinese president, and more importantly, the significance of the snub, betrayed a very real misunderstanding and lack of knowledge of, a stra- of Asian ethics and policy. Would you agree that that represents a significant danger for Australia, given the importance of Asia representing eight of Australia's Ten largest trading partners. Mm -hmm.
3: Uh, Yes, yes, I would. I mean, I think you know. Yes, the 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 big the big story here, and it really goes back to the point I was just making. In fact, is that um, uh, you know, lucky countries don't really need a foreign policy because the world works well for them. The world works well for them to support their prosperity and to sustain their security. It's unlucky countries that need a foreign policy. It's unlucky countries that really need to go out and try and shape the world, to give them an opportunity to to export and import and so on, and to to provide them with a way of building their their security. And Australia has been a very lucky country, and we've got very lazy. And so, for example, we don't pay attention to what's happening uh, with those sorts of incidents. and you know, this has allowed, for example, successive generations of Australian political leaders going back 15 years on both sides of politics to begin and end their analysis for the way Asia is being transformed by the rise of China's power and the challenge that poses to the United States by saying, we don't have to choose between America and China. Now, the historians will look back with bewilderment at how, they could possi- how, at how our political leaders could possibly imagine that that was an adequate response to the biggest transformation in the distribution of wealth and power in Asia since European settlement, which is ap- absolutely no exaggeration, that's what we're going through. And so, uh, yes, it's a, it's a terrible risk, and the risk is that we, are, we have so far Pretty much failed to acknowledge the significance of the transformation we're going through. And just now, and, and you know, to a certain extent, I've got a bit of a thank God for China side <laughs> of my analysis too. That just now, our political leaders on both sides of politics are just starting to acknowledge how different Asia is, how much that's going to demand of us as a country, how that's going to require us to think differently about our defence and about our diplomacy. And just as a little sort of tiny data point, um, the new member for Wentworth, Dave Sharma, gave his um, maiden speech in Parliament yesterday in which he said, don't want a verbal the bloke, a, a toned-down version of what I've just said. Um, he, he said, you know, Australia now faces a fundamentally different situation. We're going to have to be much more energetic and rethink the way we approach the region. And so I said, oh, good
4: for him. I think it was interesting that uh, Prime Minister Marape yeah. at the press conference... Um, yesterday, the day before, in Canberra, was asked about China. He said, "I just don't want to talk about China. It's got nothing to do with Australia. Our relationship with yes. China." Yes, yes.
2: There is yes. so much more to talk about, um, and I don't want to give the punchline away. But do read the, um, do buy a copy and read the respective essays. Uh, Hugh takes us down a slightly more radical path towards the end, and and talking about just how much we uh, maintain and and think about the the near neighbourhood as a sphere of influence and and maybe there's a rethinking process there. And, Sean, your final words relate to um, whatever the motivation for Australia's current reinvigorated interest. That increased focus is more than welcome. Mm. The challenge now is to ensure that this this attention is maintained and that we increase our presence in... Most importantly, our understanding of our nearest neighbor. There's a lot more for us to be doing in this space, a lot more to be talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our two guests tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. And that brings us to a close. But before you go, I do have a little end note that. Um, many of you will be interested in, when I was in Port Moresby recently, it was uh, for the opening of the uh, Library for Pacific Leadership and Governance, which is attached to the Mm -hmm. University of Papua New Guinea, and as part of that, we opened the Trude Collection, and that was um, a donation by the late Senator Russell Russell Trude, Trude. my predecessor, and about 1,500 of his personal and professional collection. Now, sit in Papua New Guinea. It's a really important oh, connection for us. Nice nice and as yeah. many of you would have known Russell, yes. probably an important connection yes. for yeah. you. Yeah. So, yeah. thank you very much, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.